battle lines have been drawn over involuntary treatment as part of psychiatric care. But is incarceration the answer to therapy? And will it improve subsequent recidivism? I'm your host, Dr. Maurice Pickard, and you're listening to Book Club on ReachMD. And with me today is Dr. Annette Hansen. Dr. Hansen is an assistant professor of psychiatry at the University of Maryland School of Medicine and Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. And she is the director of the Forensic Psychiatric Fellowship at the University of Maryland. She and her colleague, Dinah Miller, MD, who is an instructor in psychiatry at the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine and is the co-founder of the Accessible Psychiatry Project, have recently written the book, Committed, The Battle Over Involuntary Psychiatric Care. And this is the book that we'll be discussing in detail today. Dr. Hansen, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. To begin with, what made you decide to write this particular book at this particular time? Well, it's actually been the culmination of a 10-year process. A long time ago, Dr. Miller, along with one of our other colleagues, Dr. Stephen Davis, started a blog called Shrink Wrap. And on this blog, a number of readers would come to us and write anonymously on the blog their comments about their experience in psychiatric treatment. Most of that experience was voluntary. Some of it was involuntary. And we quickly realized that the stories they were telling us were not stories people typically would hear in the course of their psychiatric training or practice. And I thought, you know, the residents in training or experienced psychiatrists really need to hear these patient stories. And also, this would be very valuable to the general public. The thing that really started the ball rolling on the project was following the Sandy Hook shooting when many states started considering legislation to liberalize involuntary treatment laws. And so we thought a book about involuntary care would be useful to legislators and policymakers when they write these laws that they would take into consideration the effect that the laws had on some very vulnerable and sick people. That's what led up to the book. You know, since you brought this up, is really mental illness the place we should be looking for as far as who is going to have violent behavior? Certainly the literature is filled with people who, oh, who had DUIs or drug use or assault or previous history of violence rather than mental illness. So is mental illness the place we should begin with as far as these terrible mass violences? Absolutely not. We're looking in the wrong direction. The majority of people with mental illness are rarely violent. Some studies have said fewer than 4% of violent crimes are due to people with serious mental illness. They're much more likely to be the victims of violence rather than the perpetrators of violence. The main factors related to violence are being young, being male, and having an active substance abuse problem. And I have to say it, it's a hot-button topic, but access to weapons. So guns are a serious risk factor, and it's a lot easier to target a vulnerable group with few protective organizations in place than it is to tackle the NRA. That isn't what we were going to talk about today, but the state of Florida has had a gag law against doctors even asking people whether they own a gun. Now, they're not asking as an advocate for gun control. They're usually asking because they are the first ones who might know that there is a person with severe mental illness, or they might know that the husband 
has beaten his wife or that there are other evidences of violence at home. And Florida has been very active in gagging and actually taking to court physicians who might ask questions about this. And they really should be the first ones who might know that this, there's a tip of an iceberg out there of possible future violence. Right. And you're absolutely right that when it comes to asking people about access to weapons, by the way, it's not limited to guns. When psychiatrists do suicide risk assessments, they ask about general other risk factors. You know, what kind of medications do you have at home? Have you taken any steps to create a plan to hang yourself, for example? So we're looking at violence as a public health issue not a Second Amendment issue. And when it comes to gun violence, the bigger issue we have to think about isn't necessarily violence towards other people, although that certainly happens every day. But when you address gun-related violence, the bigger public health issue is suicide, self-directed violence. And what it's been estimated in Connecticut, they have something called a gun violence restraining order where a family member can go to court and ask a judge to sign an order to temporarily seize a weapon from someone who might be potentially violent. And people have estimated that for every 10 weapons that are seized, you can prevent one suicide. So you really can have a significant effect on public health by addressing the access to weapons issue. I certainly saw suicide attempts and people who attempt suicide without a firearm and are rescued, something like 90%, and you may correct me, never try again. It's often a call for help, but when you use a gun, you don't have a second chance. Right. That's exactly the issue. And suicidal thoughts happen. For some people, it's a daily occurrence. They think about it regularly, but rarely ever act on it. And the issue is to identify those people, do an assessment, and make sure they get access to the care that they need. And by the way, I think some people are reluctant to disclose those thoughts because they're afraid of being involuntarily admitted to a hospital. And I think the general public needs to know that the majority of people who have risk factors are not admitted voluntarily or involuntarily. They're handled very personably and individually in an outpatient setting. So I wouldn't want someone to be deterred from seeking care because of the fear that they would be civilly committed. One of the things you brought up as a segue is that people who have been committed and undergone, say, seclusion or restraints and found it to be just a terrible experience when they leave as outpatients and maybe begin to have suicidal thoughts again, are reticent to come back because the experience of that kind of treatment prevents them or impedes them from seeking help again. Yeah, that's certainly a concern. That's some of the statements that people on our blog made, which led to writing the book. We don't have any actual data on what the effects of civil commitment are on someone's willingness to seek care. And in fact, when it comes right down to it, we don't have any data at all nationally on how many people in this country are civilly committed every year. And it's sort of amazing that we don't have that information. Well, why is that? In your book, you mentioned that there's no database for the drop in violence or suicides using various techniques or homicide. Why don't we have that data? Well, I guess the biggest issue is it's obviously hard to do ethical case-controlled studies of involuntary treatment when the outcome is a crime. So that's one piece to it. The other piece to it is there's a lot of variation in how people define violence. So violence could be 
a criminal conviction for a violent crime. It could be an arrest. It could be a behavior that's known to someone but doesn't necessarily result in a criminal charge. Or it could be something just as easy as a a threat or a slap or nothing that results in any injury at all. So that's part of the problem when you're looking at these violence risk studies is knowing how they're defining it. In your book, you mentioned many things that I think our audience, and our audience are mainly physicians, uh, that I had never thought of as far as mental illness and that I don't think the community or federal or state systems are really addressing the same way you mentioned as a positive effect. Things like assertive community treatment, Mm -hmm. mental health courts, or crisis intervention teams. These are all kind of new to me, and they seem like such a positive and maybe inexpensive things as opposed to being a long-term patient in a mental hospital. Why isn't there more direction in these what seem to be softer techniques to people who have mental illness? Well, I think you're making a really good point. There are little points of light across the country of these projects that are in the works or have been in place for a while that have really been shown to be helpful to prevent or to obviate the need for involuntary care. The biggest limiting factor is money. If you want to avoid incarceration, if you want to reduce hospitalization rates, if you want to make people productive and engaged in society again, you have to be able to put up the money to do it. You have to put your money where your mouth is. And it can take a while. So you may have a very high upfront cost to put services in place in the community. But over the long term, that tends to break even. So one example is we hear a lot about Laura's Law, which is a law in New York that allows someone to be civilly committed as an outpatient. So in other words, this is someone who's released from the hospital, but then is under an order by a court to take medication or to adhere to certain appointments and to participate in other forms of treatment like substance abuse treatment. And in order to make this program work, they had to put over $100 million in up front, and then on an annual basis, it costs an additional $30 million per year. Now, this is one program that shows some positive outcomes. I mean, people have reduced hospitalizations, reduced recidivism rates, but it is very, very costly. The federal government really wanted to expand some of these programs in the Helping Families in Crisis Act. In other words, it's also called the Murphy Bill. And this was a bill that was earmarking federal funds to expand the use of these programs, like mental health court. A mental health court happens when someone is arrested for a crime and charged with a crime, but as an alternative to incarceration, instead they're given an opportunity to sign a voluntary treatment agreement. And it would involve all of the kind of interventions that I've just mentioned. So they'd have to take their medication, keep appointments, maintain a stable living situation. And if they do this, then they can be placed on probation and complete the program and maintain their status in the community. And this is a very useful thing, but we don't have enough of them. I think as of two years ago, we had maybe 200 of them in the country. So this is something that needs to be expanded. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Reach MD, the channel for medical professionals. With me today is Dr. Annette Hansen, the recent co-author with Dina Miller of a book called Committed, The Battle Over Involuntary Psychiatric Care. Recently, we have seen that our government is shifting its policy to being tougher on crime. Eric Holder has called it dumber on crime. How do you think this is going to affect our mental health 
patients? Will it lead to, it looks like, longer terms? Well, I've been through many different eras of criminal justice policy. 100% of my clinical practice is in a correctional system, and I've practiced in a correctional system during a tough-on-crime era where the community had a zero-tolerance policy, and now in more recent years, they've been somewhat more liberal about that and and not arresting quite as many people. And I can tell you during the tough-on-crime era, it was extremely difficult to provide effective and efficient correctional health care when you had facilities that were running at 200% of capacity. So that's an issue inside the facility. Just in general, you're going to have higher rates of mental illness because people with mental disorders also tend to be at increased risk of also having substance use disorders. And again, substance use disorders are a risk factor for criminality. So you have all these confounding variables that are going to lead to increased numbers of people with mental illness in the correctional system. So there really is going to be a disproportionate effect on people with mental illness. So right now we're seeing a rising number of suicides at the same time we see dropping hospital beds in the United States that are provided either in a public or a private situation. This seems to be a disconnect, or is it? Well, it's hard to say because suicide rates are a very, very complicated issue from an epidemiologic standpoint. There are a lot of variables that go into it. For example, as we've already talked about, um, states with high rates of gun ownership are going to have higher rates of suicide. And the other issue being that we don't have controlled trials of what actually works in the community. We do have a good example in our correctional system, though. So, you know, in the 1980s, the Supreme Court said that every jail and prison had to screen every intake for suicide risk factors and then provide voluntary services. And once that was put in place, the suicide rates in our correctional system dropped dramatically. So we know that at least offering voluntary accessible care can decrease suicides. The other trick now is that, you know, attitudes towards suicide are changing. We have, you know, right-to-die movement that's been very active in the last 10 years, and, and there's some indication that this might have an influence on suicide rates. The other factor is we don't have enough mental health professionals. I was in a meeting just a couple days ago here at the APA conference where a woman said that she was the only psychiatrist accepting new patients for a population the size of 350,000 people. Now, if you can't see a doctor when you're in crisis voluntarily, it's going to be very difficult to reach for help when you really need it in a crisis. And I think that's really the bigger issue than the number of hospital beds. You know, that's interesting. You mentioned the movement, especially in Washington and Oregon. But they're very careful, at least I am, to talk about doctor-assisted death, not doctor-assisted suicide, because I think there are two separate things, and I, I don't know if you would agree with that, but uh, it always bothers me when they talk about doctor-assisted suicide, which is really suggests a mental illness. Doctor-assisted death means somebody who's made some rational, competent decisions about how they want to end their life, which may be filled with pain at that time. Yeah, that's a very controversial issue, and it would probably constitute another show in and of itself. Yeah, the trick with that is that fewer than 5% of people requesting this in the states where it's legal actually have a mental health assessment by a psychiatrist. So I think it's really debatable what the cause of death is when there's no assessment done to, to look at whether or not there's a treatable diagnosis present. 
But again, that's a very complicated issue for a second show, I think. Right. And very often the people who do request it do not follow through because they just want the reassurance that this option is available. One of the things that's always intrigued me is to get a patient who is psychiatrically ill admitted, you have to say that his life is in danger at that moment. We admit diabetics and people with chest disease and cardiac disease and hemologic disease without stipulating that. Why is this so rigid about admitting somebody for psychiatric illness and having to say that their life is in immediate danger? Well, of course, that's only if the person is either unable or unwilling to be admitted voluntarily, which is kind of the context we're talking about now. Keep in mind, too, that the laws vary quite a bit from state to state. So the definition of dangerousness could be very strict, such as the kind you're suggesting, where the danger has to be immediate and overt. In my state, the dangerous definition is much more broad, and it could also imply an inability to care for yourself. So that would be someone like your diabetic who wasn't taking their insulin or someone with a serious mental illness who wasn't eating properly. So there's going to be some regional variations on that. Before we close, I'd like to just touch on law enforcement officers. They're frequently, certainly I'm in a large metropolitan area, they're frequently in the newspaper, often under tremendous pressure to perform under very, very difficult times. Could you say more about the training that police officers need to go through so they can be trained to recognize and respond appropriately to mental illness? After all, they're often the ones who choose whether you take this patient to the emergency room or to jail. Right. There are some really good programs now called crisis intervention teams, and these are voluntary programs where a police officer would agree to go through the process. And and the CIT training involves teaching police to recognize signs of mental illness out on the street level interaction and to learn verbal de-escalation techniques to avoid the use of force. And it also teaches the officer about the available community resources. In Florida, where some of our data was gathered, what we found was that when this training was instituted in the Miami Police Department, out of 5,000 calls for service, there were only four or five arrests. But contrary to that, more than 1,000 people were diverted into crisis units rather than into a jail. So it really does help identify people who are in need of treatment and get them hooked into services as opposed to institutionalized. Unfortunately, though, there are only about 400 CIT programs in the entire country, which represents only about 15% of the police force in this state. So we would like to see that expanded. That's one of our recommendations in our book. Yeah, you had many recommendations in the book, some of us taking you totally away from this very rigid, involuntary kind of commitment. In many of these options, we haven't really exhausted, and we often have to turn to involuntary treatment when it is in the best interest of the patient but we may be taking away their rights. This is such a daunting decision, and maybe we should be looking elsewhere more vigorously towards the paths that you are encouraging in your book. With that, I'd like to thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you. I really appreciated the opportunity. This is Dr. Maurice Pickard, and if you've missed any of this discussion, please visit reachmd.com slash book club to download this podcast and many others in this series. Thank you for listening.